Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to Leading Better and Growing Faster with Joe and TJ. I'm Joe. And I'm TJ. And we are The Schoolhouse 302. Where you can find blog posts, podcasts with expert guests, curated book recommendations, and our genius thoughts. Always on a topic that is proven to help you lead better and grow faster. If you want to support the show, all you have to do is hit us with a like, a share, a follow, or a comment. On our site or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you access our material. Again, thanks for listening and for leading better and growing faster with us. Here we go with another great episode. Hello, everyone. We're here on our show, Leading Better and Growing Faster with Joe and TJ. I'm Joe, and we are here with our guest, Jim Marshall. Jim, thank you for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, chat with you today. Absolutely. We are thrilled also, um, mainly because this book is all about initiatives that you have recently written. TJ will dive into that more but it's an everyday reality within education. Uh, but we also know it comes with some fatigue and people get tired and it is tricky. So we look forward to this interview and any insight you'll give us. TJ, how about telling our audience a bit more about Jim? Sure thing, Joe. Thanks for that. Jim Marshall's lifelong work lies at the intersection of people and the organizations in which they work, optimizing the synergy that fertile convergence holds. A professor of educational leadership at San Diego State University, his scholarship teaching and consulting combine our understanding of human performance and organization development to assess strengths, devise strategy, and improve even the most vexing of challenges. With over 200 publications to his credit, Marshall's scholarship encompasses a diverse range of works that include empirical research, program evaluation efforts, and policy development. His evaluation endeavors are particularly significant and include more than 250 individual studies of funded projects and program investments, totaling over $120 million. He serves as a thought partner to leaders seeking to hasten the collective impact of their organization's investments from assessing strengths and needs to conceptualizing strategy and program initiatives and then measuring return on investment. Marshall's unique approach relies on a proven mix of assessment and evaluation, appreciative inquiry, and empathetic understanding that predictably yield quantifiable results. His book, Right from the Start, The Essential Guide to Implementing School Initiatives, which we're going to talk about today, summarizes lessons learned through evaluation of hundreds of programs in both the public and private sectors. Okay, Jim, we want to dive in. Like we said, the book's called Right from the Start, The Essential Guide to Implementing School Initiatives. The book itself is for those of us who desire to make meaningful instructional impact, those of us who serve through initiatives and want to make a difference in schools. Let's start there with why you felt the need for this book and what you want educators to get from it. Oh, those are great questions to start off with. Um, so, so what I would say is, I, as your 
flattering introduction uh, shared. I've I've been the evaluator very often over the last 20 plus years on funded projects um, in schools and districts. Uh, and so often when you're doing the evaluation, you have an opportunity to see what's working and you also have an opportunity to really reflect on, if I were to do this all over again, uh, what would I do differently? What, what's getting in the way? And so what I really, uh, you know, the headline out of my life that has come from that work and of course leading my own programs and initiatives uh, as well, um, is that I wish, uh, I'll use a quote or a paraphrase quote that Abraham Lincoln said, which was something like, if I had 20 hours to chop down a cherry tree, I'd spend 15 sharpening the ax. So um, what I find uh, more often than not, when I'm evaluating programs, if something isn't going right, if it's not right, it's probably because it wasn't right from the start, hence the title of the book, and really taking the time to understand a situation, understand needs, understand strengths, and the genesis of a program or an initiative really needs to reflect the true need as well as root causes of what's going on here that's not allowing us to achieve the goals we set for ourselves, as well as integrate into the organization in a way that complements what already is going on, rather than kind of a plane flies over, drops off a program over a school, and we just expect it to go well and have a measurable impact. So to me, uh, right from the start means careful planning and that investment up front to design something that is attentive first and foremost to the people it's designed for, but also the organization so that you increase the chance of predictable results when you get to implementing, which is not easy no matter how you slice it. If you made that front end investment, my thesis is things will go better on the implementation the program is more likely to have a predictable result. And when then you get to the point of evaluating it, uh, you really are confirming that you have met those needs that you so carefully uncovered at the beginning. Jim, I wanna dive into that a little more if we can. Do you, have you found that it's more the people that are the obstacles to successful initiative implementation rather than the initiative itself. And does that make sense? Because when I hear you you talking about people getting it right from the start, getting this, the situation, the needs, the strengths, as you just discussed, I'm thinking immediately that's a lot of legwork that the people have to do. And I'm sitting in my own brain thinking, well, what's the balance there of like, was it not a good initiative or no, it actually had a lot of merit. It just never had a chance because of the people. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. And as you know, from my introduction, I'm really focused on and my passion lies around the interface between the people and the organization itself. So what I'm what I'm really saying um, in more ways than one here is that it is the combination of those two things, and and you also bring in the initiatives design itself, which I think is important too. But I think I would back up and say, okay, who are the people involved? Both those that are going to be 
participants in the initiative, as well as those who are going to do the implementation, like be the leadership over that, which is, you know, a large part of, um, you know, the work I do every day in training future leaders at, at San Diego State. Uh, so understand the people involved and then understand the organization and uh, its culture, its it, the environment in which the initiative is going to occur, the resources available, all of those things, because having good people ready to do something that the organization doesn't have the resources for is going to result in failure and vice versa too. Um, if, we, if we throw a lot of resources at it, but we don't have the human capital ready to go um, and it doesn't resonate with them as being an initiative that is responsive to need, that has relevance, um, that's going to make a difference in the day-to-day -day lives of the teachers in a school and the students that are there as well. Um, so I, I would argue the, that needs assessment front-end work uh, that leaders can do in as little, I argue, as a day couple of weeks, or you can take months to do needs assessment on a large initiative, but a little understanding up front will result in a program or initiative design that is more likely to see, be, succeed because it matches the people and the environment it's going to be occurring in. A lot of critical nuggets there. I know our leaders, our, our listeners, school leaders are going to take a lot from what you just said in terms of that upfront design, upfront planning, being thoughtful at the beginning, I really like how you place that in the context of predictable results. Let's know what we're going after and be able to predict what those results are more effectively than wondering why we don't get the results from an initiative or a program. Sticking with the people though, Jim, I'd like you to talk about this equation that you have in the book, motivation equals value multiplied by confidence. Can you explain that to our, our listeners? Because I, I think under this umbrella of people where we've started this conversation, it's, it's important. Yeah, TJ, that, thanks for asking that question. I have to tell you, that is one of the most meaningful um, theories, I guess we would say, that I ever learned straight out of graduate school. And it's credited to a gentleman who has the most fantastic last name. It's Vroom, V-R-O-O-M. You know, I, they, he got in the right line to get a last name, if you ask me. Um, so, uh, so it's what's called expectancy theory. And Conceptually, it basically says that your motivation is the product of your confidence in performing, so self-efficacy, um, as well as the level or amount of value you place on doing that performance, that task, that outcome. And so what Vroom says through expectancy theory is, if your value is really high, but your self-efficacy is low, your motivation is low, and vice versa. You could have um, you know, all the confidence in the world, but if you don't care and you don't see a reason for doing, which includes things like relevance, um, if you don't see that, then again, the product, you know, any number times zero, uh, is zero. And so it's not enough to just care and it's not enough to just be confident that it is the, the product of those two things coming together that then motivates you intrinsically to perform. And so when I'm looking at initiatives 
um, especially when I'm often called in to look at an initiative that maybe isn't going well. These are some of the questions I ask of people like, oh, you know, so tell me about like, how much does this matter to you? And, and how would you describe your level um, around how much you believe you can be successful doing this? And that has implications going back to, do they have the skills and knowledge? Have they been trained to implement correctly? Um, it goes back to other things that relate to motivation, like incentives. Like, does anybody outside of me care when I'm doing this, when I'm implementing this new program? Um, or if I'm a student, when I'm learning something new, like, does it, that, is there a reason for me to learn? And people always say, oh, well, you know, it, it all goes back to money, but, but it doesn't. Just somebody, as leaders, we know, just somebody noticing is an incentive for us to, to, to do the right thing and to implement the um, initiative. Um, and I'll wrap it up by, uh, in my answer uh, to your great question by just observing how many times uh, as educators have we been trained on a new program or a new curriculum or something new that we would call a program or initiative and then walked away out of that training and nobody ever asked about it again. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, talk about the opposite of predictable results. It's like if nobody ever notices, the, the chances of it happening are purely that. They're random chance. Yeah, unfortunately, that crushes morale as well, Jim, you know that. And just so many things that go wrong with initiative, checking boxes to get things done to satisfy just something, fill in the blank with that something just doesn't work. Um, but you just mentioned something towards the end there that I do want to draw a clear distinction because I think you do a great job with this in the book. Um, and that is the difference between a program and an initiative. For our audience, can you just detail those? Because I think that's important and what you're describing with the motivation, with the confidence, with it, but also this clear distinction between a program and the initiative and the work that entails to make them successful. Yeah, yeah, that is um, an important uh, sort of background piece um, in the book. You know, I would say if we, and I do say in the book, if we were doing this 10 years ago, I'd be talking only about programs. But I think we've entered a phase in, in our field where we realize that, especially what I would refer to as kind of naked programs just existing out there, don't return often the same predictable results as those sorts of efforts, which I term initiatives, that are more deeply embedded in the school or the district, um, are carefully resourced, are noticed, uh, there's buy-in up the leadership ladder, um, and, and a certain amount of oversight and care and a commitment to the sort of front-end work to do the right thing, as well as the back-end work of evaluation to confirm we did the right thing and make adjustments if and when we need to. And so I argue in the book um, that a program is more likely to be somewhat, and I use the iceberg model that you probably have seen in other contexts, but a, a program is kind of like the, the iceberg that's not deep in the water. It's very shallow and kind of adrift because it is more subject, I argue, to the day-to-day -day comings and goings and whims of folks. 
Whereas an initiative, when, when the investment is made and we make those investments wisely and with priority, um, which includes choosing which programs and initiatives we're not gonna do. <laughs> so, so we invest our time wisely and focus it uh, when we're doing initiatives on doing that deep work so that we can be more certain of predictable results down the road. So I would argue that, you know, uh, in today's world where consequences of, you know, making a choice of where we're going to make our investments to pay off with our teachers and with, with our students, I make the argument that we should be leaning more towards initiatives and less so about having any number of programs that we continue to add. Yeah, that's a that's a clear distinction. I definitely have that in 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 one sentence to unpack it. That you argue that a program is like the tip of the iceberg, while an initiative should be able to get to the deeper parts of the iceberg, right? And that's what helps us to make the changes that we want to make and be able to predict what those changes are. If you could, Jim, because our listeners are gonna they like stuff they can do things that they can uh, make a difference with today, tomorrow, they're going to want takeaways. And there's been a lot of them so far, but what are the do's and don'ts? If you're talking to school leaders right now that you've seen through your program evaluations to say, here's just a few that I can name some pitfalls, don't fall into these traps and some things that I would say will help you to make uh, your initiative successful, especially for leaders who are listening to this into the summer who are going to be in program and initiative um, e either evaluation or implementation soon? Uh, yeah, wonderful to, to give that some thought. I would say off the top of my head, um, you know, the, a do is definitely what we've been talking about, which is do spend the time to truly develop a full understanding um, or at least some understanding of what's going on in a situation. Do we have low test scores? Do we have a bullying problem? Um, are we trying to change pedagogical practice uh, in, in our classrooms? Whatever it is, spending the time to talk to people and understand what is going on, um, as opposed to, and here's the corollary don't, um, assuming and trusting that our existing view on something is 100% accurate. Um, and I will just tell you, um, and... Uh, Joe, I think you brought this up too about how you lose support real quickly when it's uh, when you don't take that time. To me, part of running initiative, and here's another do, is not only doing the needs assessment work, but using that as the opportunity to build a, a, a buy-in among the people who are involved and support for the for the initiative that eventually will result. Another do, I would say, that naturally stems from uh, investing that front-end time is do make sure the people involved are clearly reflected in the initiative you design. They should see themselves. They should say at the beginning, when we begin, like we do PD to prepare them for the coming school year, we're going to be implementing something new. They should say, wow, it's like they knew exactly what I needed. <laughs> Those are the words you want to hear in PD that should be music to your ears. Um, and then another do 
that I think is um, a, a difficult one sometimes for um, school leaders is the whole, uh, the whole activity of program evaluation. I think sometimes in education, we think, oh, that's for program evaluators. That's for people who are highly trained in that area. Yeah, sometimes it is. But the other do I, I see daily with the leaders I work with is that they're already doing program evaluation informally. It might just be in their head, but the activity of program evaluation is collecting data, drawing conclusions, challenging your assumptions about what you see through the data and making good decisions about what's working, what's not, and what implications that have, have to make things work better. Um, so that continuous improvement cycle. So I argue again in the book that, you know, we're, we spend most of our time implementing these programs and initiatives. Let's spend a little more time on the front end, maybe a lot more time on the front end, and then spend at least make a little investment due in the program evaluation, because you'll be amazed what you find. And so often the reason initiatives fall off the face of the school district is because nobody's collected the data to show they're having an impact. And so somebody goes, oh, budgets are lean. You know, well, what have we heard about this one? Uh, we could probably cut that one back. You, when you commit to initiative, you should commit to its care and feeding, if you will, for time um, to really understand uh, the, the impact it's having so that um, you can advocate for it and keep it in place in the long run. That's very well said. A ton of major takeaways in that response. And I want to just highlight, Jim, that there is a through line ultimately between the upfront work and the program evaluation. That becomes so much clearer when you know what you're really trying to achieve. And I think that clarity comes from truly discovering, all right, why this initiative, why this way, who do we want involved and what do we want to see? And I think that's part of the issue then why we abandon things so fast because we haven't really decided, hey, this is what we need to learn about this pro or this initiative, here are the metrics we're looking for. We don't have that information. Something else comes in, and it's so easy to abandon the other the other initiative. Um, and we see that all the time. And you know what is amazing about that? Um, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I will tell you that more than half of the time, I get an email. Somebody picks up the phone and calls me. Um, to talk about doing um, some program evaluation, I'll say, well, could you show me your, uh, you know, list of outcomes or what it's designed to do? More than half the time, either there are no outcomes or they're written in terms that are completely not measurable. They're like broad goals. Um, and so you hit the nail on the head as far as I'm concerned, because that needs assessment on the front end is the time to define exactly what we're looking for and where we're going. And then program evaluation, which I kind of think of as the yang to needs assessments yin, if you will, program evaluation focuses largely then on confirming we've made it, that what we set out to do, we've done, 
And if we haven't fully done it, what can we do to adjust to continue it uh, iteratively hone in on those outcomes? Yeah, excellent, excellent. And I, I really think people can benefit by focusing on that evaluation because then the adjustment may be a tweak and not an overhaul or not or abandoning something. There's just a lot of value in there. Thank you, Jim. Most of our audience, uh, I never like to say everyone, although TJ may argue with me, loves to develop and grow as leaders. And so a big part of this, and you know, like everything you just described requires just greater leadership capacity, your ability to sit back, create space between you and initiative, figure out what's going on, um, being able to listen without like jumping to conclusion or wanting to act. You know, so many leaders are doers, which can be at a fault to some extent with all of this. So Jim, switching gears a little bit, is there a person or group who you follow for either knowledge or inspiration and where could we find them? Oh, it's one you're all going to know and I hope love. Um, and and so uh, I actually would say uh, for me, it's Michael Fullen. Um, it's probably no surprise that would come out of my mouth given what I've been talking about. But I, so I remember reading Change Forces back when I was in PhD school 20 plus years ago. Um, and I just think, his ideas um, have stood the test of time and continue to evolve. But um, of late, things uh, that really uh, speak to me in his work, he talks about triage and urgency of need, which I just love that terminology. Needs assessment is triage. That, that's what we're doing. Um, and then he talks about uh, the concept of joint determination. Um, that the people involved much shape the initiative and should inform its continuous improvement. And, you know, if there is an underlying theme in my book, um, it, my intention is that it is the voice of the audience. Um, again, because when change is involved, we've all been part of change that was done to us, not with us. Um, and we all, I think, as leaders can agree that the with us is, is the way to, uh, to bring about positive change in organizations and with people. That's great. We'll definitely link to Michael Fullen's work and especially we'll link for our audience to Change Forces, that book. Um, we'll put that right in the show notes so that folks can grab it. And yes, you're right. We do follow Michael Fullen and we love his work as well. We cite it often and um, give away his books. And uh, I think he's he's also got some blurbs for us on a few of ours. So that's been cool as well. Um, Jim, is there one thing that people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life from your perspective? You know, I... Here's what I'm going to tell you. I was a program evaluator for decades, I think, uh, or at least one, before I came across the concept of appreciative inquiry. And it changed the way I look at the world. So what I would argue is, 
you know, I, as a kind of an evaluator by training and trade, and it's what I mostly teach to leaders in our graduate programs, um, I have really changed my mindset in terms of appreciative inquiry basically says, what around us is working good? Let's start from there and use that to build strengths. And what I would say to you is, that may not sound especially earth shattering in 2023, um, especially in the work that we do with our students in schools. Um, and yet, for some reason, when it comes to program evaluation or the concept of evaluation, people still often, educators in particular, react viscerally to it. <laughs> like it's gonna be bad and they're gonna find out awful things. And uh, to me, I said the one thing I feel people should try to do related to the things we're talking about today um, is really balance their approach and appreciative inquiry for me um, as a field and as kind of a concept um, is something I continue to try to increase the amount of um, in my professional work. Thank you, Jim. What's one thing that you want to know or be able to do that you don't already? So <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about this particular question um, and my answer might be a little out there. Um, but one of the things I've spent a fair amount of my time doing just by, I think, luck, and I'm, I'm thankful for it, is um, my work is about, uh, anymore, it's probably about 60 to 70% in schools, but over the years, it's been as much as 50% in nonprofits, um, government organizations, the military, even in their training programs and education programs, and even corporations. Um, and so one thing that I would like to know <laughs> that I don't already um, is why there is not more knowledge and exchange and shared best practice around all of these organizations. I think so often we think of schools as a completely different entity and they are, but I would argue that I think there's a lot these other sorts of um, businesses, business entities could learn from education leaders in our schools today. There's amazing things to be learned there. And I would argue there is cross-pollination that it could occur there as well. Um, there was a famous study in the 90s um, that found in corporations that when an innovation occurs in a little pocket of the organization, like some positive innovation, it takes on average two years before anybody else outside that pocket even knows about it. Um, and so the dissemination of best practice is something I'm very um, passionate about, and I feel like uh, overall more knowledge sharing could help us quite a bit. I think you make an important point there too, especially in education. We have all these people running around with master's degrees and doctorate degrees and school leadership who have a tremendous amount of knowledge. We often go to an educational leadership conference and somebody from a business organization is given a keynote and the educators are scribbling down their notes. And yes, we learn a lot from them, but I wonder why more businesses don't have some of the great leaders from education to keynotes at, at their conferences, because you can learn a lot from how education is run and the innovations that we put in place in schools. It's incredible. Look, I couldn't agree with you more. And I would just say, I mean, if you want to learn how to multitask, 
talk to an educational leader because they that is their life. Um, and the fact that they can manage so many different things all at once from the infrastructure of the building to, to human resources and, and then oversee learning. I mean, it, 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 there's a lot to learn there. And, and the businesses I work with and consult with could stand to have some of those lessons for sure. That's fantastic. Um, I wonder, in that same vein, though, as leaders, as learners, we're constantly growing. You're constantly in a state of growth, putting yourself in positions to grow, helping others do the same. What's one thing that has led to and continues to support your growth as a leader that others might be able to replicate? So we were talking earlier um, about the expectancy theory and the motivation equation. Um, and I talked about environment and incentives and skills and knowledge. There actually is a model um, that I present in the book that predates my presentation um, and a lot of good thinkers behind it, but it's this concept of performance engineering. And it basically is like a hierarchy of needs um, where uh, to a point, but what it says is we have to have the skills and knowledge. We have to be motivated. The organization needs to provide us with the resources necessary that include, you know, say, access to technology, but also time, dedicated time to perform, and then incentives. The organization or people in it have to care. That model permeates everything I do in life, um, you know, from obviously my work um, in schools and districts and with other organizations, right down to, um, you know, when somebody in my house won't do the dishes out of the sink, I go through the whole triage process of performance engineering to try to fix it. Um, so I would, I would say to you that that model has helped me make sense of a lot of things in life. Um, as I look, when something isn't happening the way I or whoever I'm working with wants it to happen, it is a very handy tool to quickly assess, triage, and make some decisions about what's going on here. And the leaders I work with in our doctoral and master program, um, when they learn it, it's not something in the education curriculum as much as it is in the training and development curriculum. They find that makes a huge difference um, in giving them a tool that they use daily when things aren't going exactly as they want. Uh, it gives them kind of a checklist to go down to gain some clarity. I love that. And I have to admit, I'm not sure about TJ. I, I'm not that familiar with performance engineering. It's not something I've heard, uh, you know, enough about from the sounds of it. So I look forward to digging into that more myself and how that applies. I mean, it sounds like an incredible tool to quickly run through um, why something is or is is not working right. So Jim, Final question as we wrap up, something you used to think that you don't think anymore. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to say that every problem or challenge is solvable through gap analysis. I spent more than a decade of my life, as I admitted earlier, you know, just really living a glass is half empty sort of existence. <laughs> Um, and I, I acknowledge that appreciative inquiry in part has liberated me from <laughs> that sort of uh, deficit only thinking. But what I would just say is um, 
how much nicer of a world is it to live in and how much more hopeful in terms of change when we can acknowledge both gaps where they exist and opportunities for improvement, but also the strengths that uh, we can leverage to take us there. Um, and so that, uh, that sort of like gap analysis is everything to me, um, has definitely evolved to more of a, fo a balanced focus on gaps and strengths. Um, as I look to increase my own chance of, of yielding predictable results with the schools and districts uh, uh, with which I work. I think that's a great, also a great tool and a great place to end, which is we cannot continue to think of evaluation or even school improvement as finding the things that are broken. There are things that are working in our schools. There are many things that are working in our schools. There are people, our best people are doing awesome work. The idea here is to find out how that's happening and to replicate it. So I, I, I love that you call that appreciative inquiry. Um, and I've taken a ton, a ton of notes on it today that we'll put into the show notes. This has just been fantastic, Jim. We appreciate your time. Um, You've brought a lot of tools. You've put them in the book. We're going to make sure that folks have have a, a link to that right from the start, the Essential Guide to Implementing School Initiatives. Is there anything else that you would like to add today for our listeners? Something we didn't ask, a request that you might have, um, a resource that you would share, final thoughts? You know, here's my final thought. I worry often when we have these discussions that it sounds complicated and I've worked really hard in the book to make it accessible. And that the early feedback on the book is um, that, well, first off, that the words sound just like me when I talk. So I'm, I'm pretty accessible, I'd like to think. Um, uh, so that's number one. But number two is it sounds like, oh, this is going to be a lot of work, the needs assessment and that. I purposely uh, gave a bunch of suggestions in the book. Like if you have a few hours to do this work, if you have a few days, if you have weeks or months. And so it doesn't really matter how much time you have to in invest. There's something you can do to increase the chance of predictable results. And you'll find um, the tools as well as uh, the text or the narrative uh, to set you on that journey. And if it needs to be a really efficient one, a little investment here is going to pay off. Some data, as long as it's reliable, is better than no data. And spending a bit of time reflecting on where you're going to go before you go there um, is going to yield an increased chance of impact. What a great way to finish up here. I know Joe can't help it either. It just aligns directly with our work. We always say that our audience follows the Schoolhouse 302 to help them to get to simple, to lead better and grow faster. And we even say that leadership might be complex, but it doesn't have to be complicated. Same thing with this work here. It might be complex, but it doesn't have to be complicated. And the smallest investment that you put in to it, it, whether that's the reflection up front or the evaluation at the end, you're going to get more from your initiatives. You heard it here first. There you have it. Another great podcast. Don't forget to follow our blog, theschoolhouse302.com for blog posts, podcasts, video blogs, 
books to read, always on the topic of leadership. And we hope you enjoyed hanging out with us and our special guest, Jim Marshall. Jim, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Hey leaders, before you go, one more announcement. We now have available for you our candid and compassionate feedback masterclass. Really, because of high demand, we are thrilled to offer this. This is a course that we run live and in person all the time and leaders love it. They learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away, including better praise to lift and celebrate your team. It's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own, self-paced, from the comfort of your office or home. Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our Candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better and grow faster. Go to the site, theschoolhouse302.com, click on shop courses, add this course to your cart and start learning today.